Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. All right, welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. We're doing chapter four today, which is titled Maximal Divine Power. In the last few chapters, we've been kind of getting general consensuses or ideas about God, ranging from classical to process theism. Then we went over some of the different Mormon thoughts on that. And today we're going to get into the analytical part where we are examining different attributes, for example, omnipotence in this one, but we're trying to analytically come up with definitions. So the first part of this is just kind of come up, trying to come up with an adequate definition for omnipotence, and then after that it deals with problems regarding that definition or possible concerns. So that's a basic overview, but obviously it's more in-depth than that. So what we'll start out with is the first section. Well, before that, I just wanted to read this, and before we get into any sections, it outlines basically the traditional view, or of most Christians view omnipotence. They would view it as this. Augustine stated, God is called omnipotent on account of doing what he wills, not on account of his suffering what he wills not. For if that should befall him, he would by no means be omnipotent. That's kind of the classical view on omnipotent. Like, basically, God can do whatever the crap he wants, because if he couldn't, then he wouldn't be omnipotent. But... We move into the first section, which says, like, well, you know, sure, we'll say God is all-powerful, but we have to kind of define what that means. So the first section is logical limitations on God's power. And the basic idea that we go over here is Aquinas, even, in his thought, said that God can do everything that doesn't imply a logical contradiction. For example, if you say X makes it so 2 plus 2 is 5, if you replace X in this idea with God, it doesn't make it any more plausible or not absurd than it already is on its face. So pretty much everyone agrees that God can't do logical impossibilities other than what, I guess, Descartes didn't. There's a position on his absolute possibilism. Descartes is a person who adopted that. There's a modern philosopher by the name of Parrish, who I have responded to on a number of occasions, classical theist who takes the position of universal possibilism. That is, God can even do the absurd because God isn't limited by human conceptuality. And so even if what we're asserting is a meaningless string of words, God can still do it. Well, that's an assertion. I don't think most people, I mean, I guess some people might hold to that, but I don't want to spend too much time on it just because it seems to make sense. If it's just absurdness and illogical, then it probably can't be done just by definition. All right, the next section is limitations on God's power arising from divine attributes. For example, obviously, if God is all good and all honest, we'll say, we would say, even in the scriptures, it says this, uh, you know, God can't lie, he can't save people in their sins, and he cannot deny himself uh, from the New Testament. And so those are things that people are saying God can't do, but it's based on his divine attributes, meaning his nature precedes his power, I guess we'd say here. There's a philosophical point to be made here. It's the doctrine of essential predication. So, for instance, many philosophers following Kripke have held that ideas of identity are necessary in some sense. So, for instance, let's say that God is Yahweh. God could not bring it about that he's not Yahweh. He has the identity that he has necessarily. 
But also, most people have been loath to conceive of the possibility that God might do something evil. God doesn't merely just happen to be good. He's good because, by definition, God is that which is good. In fact, he's the source of good in most classical thought. So, there's this notion, and it's a logical notion, and that is that, essentially, God must be good. What it means is that, within his essence, logically, God wouldn't be God if he were good. But it's not merely that God wouldn't be God, because in the classical tradition, God can't cease to be God. He's necessarily existent. Therefore, it's a necessarily true proposition that God is good. What that means is of logical necessity. God can't fail to be good. On this view, saying that God can't fail to be good is merely another way of saying that he can't fail to do the logically impossible, which is a really strange way of looking at it. This is how the doctrine of essential predication works, because I can fail to be good. It's certainly logically possible to fail to be good. But given the doctrine of essential predication, it's not logically possible for God to fail to be good, because included within the very concept of God is this notion of goodness. So the question then becomes, is God contingently good? That is, is this a property that God has because he makes free choices and he could fail to be good if he freely chose to do so? Or is this something that God must be? And there's a real strange notion here because our notion of goodness is tied up also with our notions of freedom and our notions of moral obligation. But if God is the source of morality, he can't have moral obligations. And if he must be good in this sense, he can't fail to be good. He's not free to not be good. So what we mean by God being good therefore becomes something very different than what we mean normally when we say a person is good. So the notion that God is good is a different notion. It's a different in classical theism, it's a very different notion than it is in asserting that a, this human being is good. They're not just semantic distinctions, they're logical distinctions. So what I want to point out here is the doctrine of essential predication. I reject the doctrine of essential predication as it relates to God. Almost all classical theists would accept it. So maybe that gives you some background. It does. All right. So the idea that God is essentially something, meaning he can't not be that, and that, like I said, it is prior to anything else in him, then, yeah, that is interesting. So as you're saying, if God is essentially good, then you mention in the book that's not necessarily a morally praiseworthy good, because if you can't not be good, then it's not something that is praiseworthy at all. Only with the opportunity to not be good is always being good going to be something praiseworthy, and you go into that a little bit later in the section. But as we go, I wanted to outline your different definitions. In the first one, we basically adopted this. I'll, I'll just read it. So, DO meaning definition of omnipotence. An agent A is omnipotent if A is able to bring about any logical possible state of affairs. In this next section, we're going to modify that slightly, and we call it DO2, or definition of omnipotence 2. God is able to bring about any logical possible state of affairs compossible with God's essential property. So just as we said, if it can be had in regard to God's essential properties, whatever those may be. So, I'll just read this quote from the book. It says, I believe that acting out of the necessity of one's nature is incompatible with genuine moral freedom. For why should we praise a being for doing good when the being can not possibly do otherwise? We may as well praise water for freezing at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. And I thought that was a pretty good point. And then the next point, 
which kind of brings us into the next idea. It says, moreover, if God could have created persons in such a way that they could choose between goods and not between good and evil, then would not their agency be more like God's agency and thus better than it is? So clearly a being can exist if you adopt this view that only has goods because their nature requires them to do so. God could have created us like that, but he didn't. (laughs) What's the logical limitation on God creating us free in the sense that we can choose only among goods? So this goes to a defense to the problem of evil known as the free will defense. And it simply is making the point that, look, if freedom means the ability to choose merely among good, and, you know, all choices that are good but never choosing evil, then why didn't God make us that way? And the answer is that morally significant free will is more valuable than free will which cannot fail to do good. The ability to do evil, even if doing evil itself is not good, we praise people when they do what they should do. And this is a moral judgment, but when we say a person should do something, we imply that they could fail to do it. They have the freedom to do so. And so tied up in all of these notions, and we'll get into this much more later in the book, are notions of free will, what goodness is. But it's very important to recognize that in the classical tradition, when we call God good, we're doing it in a way that is very different than we normally speak. And so when we set up arguments this way, we tend to get into the problem of equivocation. And so it's important, and that's a part of the reason that we're defining terms and to have a a responsible discussion, because otherwise almost everything we say is vixiated by, um, that means it's undone by the notion of equivocation, which means we're using two different notions. I call this thing a banana. But what you mean by banana is something different than what I mean by banana. And so we're not really talking about the same kind of a thing. Banana is a pretty bad example because the diff- there used to be a different species and it was wiped out, I think, in about the 1920s. And so we haven't seen that species since. But if what you mean by banana is something that's long and is edible, a cucumber could be a banana, a number of things could be a banana. It depends on what you mean by that. So what a classical theist means by banana is something that is very different than just the regular banana. Asking those questions, we say, okay, so that's kind of a problem, unless we say perhaps God is actually a title. And then you have a, an analogy that we, you've used before of the mayor of Boston saying, let's say the mayor of Boston has a certain bunch of properties, and one of them is that he can't commit a felony. And anyone that does commit a felony and is caught, obviously, will no longer be the mayor of Boston. And so while being the mayor of Boston requires that you don't do that, if the agent that is the mayor of Boston does do that, then he loses the title of being the mayor of Boston because that is essential to being the mayor of Boston. However, he doesn't cease to exist as a person. He just ceases to be that particular title of a person. And this is important in this sense because what classical theists are saying is that God can't be like a title. In other words, God can't abdicate his divinity. And when we get into notions of Christ becoming human, this becomes very important because in essence, they're rejecting up front a canonic Christology. And we'll define that later. But in essence, we have this statement in Alma that if uh, God were unjust, he would cease to be God. If he were less than fully merciful and less than fully just, then he would cease to be God. So there's this notion that Alma has that, you know, essential to the notion of God is that he is both just and merciful. But it seems to be something that he's contemplating, you know, if that happened, he wouldn't be God. And I think underlying Alma's argument is the notion that God can't cease to be God. Therefore, that's impossible. 
But what I want to say is that maybe it is possible for God to cease to have the title of God, to cease to hold the position like an elected official. And if he did something that were contrary to his goodness, he wouldn't cease to be the person that he is, but he would cease to be fully divine. But the problem with that is, if you're saying that this person is not essentially good, then it's conceivable that God, the Father, could do evil. And if that's possible, then how are we sure we're not living in a world, like you say, it's, it's a possible thing, and as we talked about possible worlds, how can we be sure that that possible world where he does do evil is not our actual world? But rather than go into that, you pretty much take care of that right off the bat, and you say, well, the Father has so formed his character over eons of time and manifested a fixity in moral goodness such that the possibility of going wrong is merely logical but not practical. And then you have a pretty fun little analogy is that, you know, we could say, take Mother Teresa and say, you know, I guess it's logically possible that one day she could have run off and joined a brothel rather than continue in her ways. But that's merely logical and not exactly probable, you say. And so even more so for God, he's such a trustworthy, morally good character that we can trust him. So it's not that he has to be essentially good, but he's just such a good person or such a good being or entity, whatever you want to call him, that that's not really something that we need to worry about, although technically it's possible. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be absurd to lay awake at night while Mother Teresa was alive worrying whether or not she was going to abdicate and run off and join a brothel. And, you know, as as you've already observed, much less so with God we have to worry. So it seems to me that that is a sufficient answer to the concern that God could fail to be good for purposes of logical possibility. But in terms of form, character, and trustworthiness, a person of faith is not going to have that concern. Probably more so for Mormons if you, well, as we we went over the lectures on faith, and that basically talks about his character and how his power works by faith, and so without getting into that too much, just he's so trustworthy, that's why he has this power at all. At least that's one way to think about it. The next point you make, which I don't know, I have sort of issue with the way you say it, but it makes sense, but you're saying God is also a perfectly rational being. And perfectly rational beings probably would see that it just doesn't make sense to do morally evil things because they have all the knowledge that there is. And without going into it in the book, you say, obviously, you don't have room to argue for it there, that doing wrong is generally irrational or doing evil to others is irrational. And therefore, we don't have to worry about that as well. But I just wonder, well, perfectly rational seems to be ascribing to him one of those platonic principles that we got away from. So I was just wondering, why would we think he's perfectly rational other than, are you just saying he's just got all the knowledge and therefore, if you have all the knowledge, you would see that that's just more likely or more Uh, desirable? he's He's perfectly rational in the sense that he is never overcome by stupidity, forgetfulness. He's never overcome by angry emotion that clouds his judgment. He's never overcome by failure to love, which seem to be the source of most of our moral problems. So a perfectly rational being is one that will assess matters in in such a manner that they will always, at the very least, strive to be good because that is the most rational way to be. However, it's not an essential property. I haven't argued for it here. What I would have argued for is the notion that to be rational includes a notion of freedom. Rationality assumes that free will exists Because we arrive at our conclusions, not because of some necessity, but we arrive at them because of our rational thinking processes, our cognitive processes. 
And so I've given the argument elsewhere in an article entitled Mormonism and Determinism that was published in Dialogue that rationality entails freedom, but it doesn't make it any less true that we can always count on God to be loving and rational because of his commitment to both. And he's not going to be overcome by the kind of things that beset us as we grow. It's not the kind of stupidity that is manifest by a brain that's less than fully formed like we see in kids. And it's not the kind of stupidity we see by a person who gets drunk. And it's not even the kind of stupidity that we see in a person who engages in self-deception in order to hide from themselves the obvious truth about what their obligation is. So, even though God must act freely to be rational, it nevertheless is the case. It is considerable comfort when we consider whether or not he would do evil. When I read that, I was just thinking, of like, well, perfectly rational humans have conceived that before. Let's take Star Trek, Mr. Spock, and he seems not to really have genuine emotions, unfortunately. I was thinking, can a perfectly rational being actually have real emotions like love or compassion? Or are those, if you have rational, like, oh... You're hurt because you are stupid and you just don't understand. If you understood like I would, you wouldn't feel these things and it's not rational to feel emotions. I don't know, that's just like a Star Trek trope. Well, yeah, except that God does have emotions, except for their emotions within the context of the fullness of the divine life. So, for instance, God is never overcome with despair. He's not like a teenager who can't put things into perspective and it's, oh, I lost my girlfriend, my life is over. God is able to put everything into a proper eternal perspective in the context of his plan and and the goodness that he is persuading us, urging us, begging us to bring forth, knowing that no matter what happens, his plan is going to be realized. But I have to believe that when people choose to do evil, when people do things that hurt other people, when people are stupid enough not to fully realize their amazing potential, God feels a sense of loss, a sense of things could have been different, and if they had been different, it would have been better, but that's not fully up to me. So that leads us to the next section. And Jacob was going to take this next section, so introduce the title and then take it from there. Yeah, so the next section is limitations on God's power imposed by significant human freedom. And this goes a little bit further in saying not only is God not able to do things that aren't logically possible, there are things that are not only logically possible, but also that happen that God is restrained in some way from stopping. If you could go further into detail on that. The notion here is that there are states of affairs that by their very nature, God cannot bring them about even though we bring them about, that is, our own free actions. It's certainly logically possible for me to bring about my own free actions. It's logically impossible for God to bring about my free actions. So here we have another species of something that it's logically possible to do, but it's not logically possible that God do it. God cannot bring about a free action because if he did so, it wouldn't be free. (laughs) A free action can't be caused in that sense. And so God, and and I, you know, I look at this in some detail in terms of the theory of Luis de Molina, a 16th century Spanish theologian, a brilliant theologian, Catholic, who essentially observed in terms of possible worlds, there are many, many possible worlds that God cannot bring about because they have to be brought about by the free actions of humans. And it's not up to God what those free actions are. 
So God discovers, so to speak, when he views all the possible worlds, that there are numerous possible worlds that are not up to him, and he can't change the fact that they're not up to him. Now, if God has knowledge, middle knowledge, and we'll get into that in later chapters, then God has a certain kind of providence that allows him, nevertheless, to bring about whatever he can by creating the circumstances in which free persons would freely bring about what he wants. But... Nevertheless, there are all kinds of worlds that are beyond God's power to bring about, given the way that people would choose if they were created. So God is limited by a certain sense of fate on the notion of middle knowledge, and he can't change it. It's just, however, the truth of propositions that are known as counterfactuals of freedom fall out in terms of that's just the way that it is. God is limited by a certain sort of fate on that view. On the view that God doesn't have middle knowledge and that the future isn't known, it's still the case that God can't bring about our free actions. And so, even though it's logically possible that the actions are done, it's logically possible, in fact, that we do these actions freely. They're beyond God's power to bring about by the very nature of what the action is. Now, this assumes a certain notion of free will as well and freedom in terms of our ability to act, and we'll define that in later chapters as well. Now, when it comes to God kind of meddling in, in human affairs, uh, he, he can't cause someone to make an action. Does he ever step in to stop someone from making an action? God, on the classical view in terms of middle knowledge, God can have any world he wants simply by overriding the freedom of the creatures that he's dealing with. So if God didn't want to respect our freedom on that view, he would be able to accomplish anything he wanted. But let's say that there are certain kinds of things that must be done freely. I think it's very plausible, and I argue for it in the second volume, that love must be a free action. It has to be freely chosen. It can't be coerced. It can't be something that's determined by something outside of us, or it's not our act. Love has to be a free choice that's up to us, which means that if God's purpose is to bring us to love him, he can't cause us to love him. Because then it wouldn't be love. It would be something fake. It would be like a hypnotist hypnotizing a person to love him. It's not true love. And anybody who believed that that was true love, I would suggest, doesn't understand what love is at all. So there are some things that by their very nature, God cannot override and simply bring about coercively. Because by their very nature, they have to be left up to us to freely do. If salvation, and I would suggest, and I argue for this, salvation is one of the kind of things that has to be freely chosen because salvation and exaltation consists of freely choosing to love God and entering into a relationship of fellowship in which we grow in relationship with each other by freely choosing to be in relationship day after day in each moment that we can. And so, by its very nature, Salvation and exaltation are not things that God can coerce. So his plan must deal with certain contingencies. Now I'm going to point out something that's kind of ironic here. In Mormon thought, what Satan wanted to do was to take away our free agency. Hmm. And then he would save us all. Given what I've just said, Satan's plan was logically impossible. He couldn't bring it about because in order to save us, he would have to leave us free to choose. So what he was proposing was literally impossible. He couldn't bring it about doesn't matter if God had relented and said, yeah, go for it. So let's see what you can do. It's logically impossible for Satan to bring about our salvation and exaltation any more than God could do it. <laughs> so the plan he proposed was stupid in the most classical use of the term stupidity. That means he was searching for a means to accomplish something, knowing that it couldn't be done. And that's stupid in the non-formal sense as well. <laughs> All right. And kind of what 
had me thinking about this was actually in the Book of Mormon in Alma chapter 19. Uh, we have Alma has been serving among the Lamanites and he's been brought before the king because he protected the king's flock and during protecting the king's flock he slew one of the Lamanites and he becomes teaching the king and then they're so overcome with the spirit that they all fall to the ground and then people are seeing that there's a Nephite among the Lamanites and he's on the ground and they think he might have killed him and then in verses 22 and 23 it says now one of them whose brother had been slain with the sword of Ammon being exceedingly angry with Ammon, drew his sword and went forth that it might fall upon Ammon to slay him. As he lifted his sword to smite him, behold, he fell dead. Now we see that Ammon could not be slain, for the Lord had said unto Mosiah his father, I will spare him, and it shall be unto him according to thy faith. Therefore Mosiah trusted him unto the Lord. So when we're seeing the limitations on God imposed by having significant human freedom, and this is kind of where I wanted to go with that question, Here, we appear to have an example of God stepping in and stopping a free act from happening, partially because he made a promise to a prophet beforehand. But what's your view on that, and how does that work? Well, we see it happening all the time. The people who tried to steady the ark were killed. The people who uh, didn't give their substance to the Christian community in Acts were taken out by God. How far and how literally we should take these descriptions, I think, is another question. But here we see, if we take them seriously, God acting coercively to prevent something from happening, presumably because it may affect his plan and how it has to be carried out. My surmise would be that uh, Ammon was essential to God's plan for the Lamanites, and therefore he wouldn't allow somebody to slay him. But, you know, when was the last time you, you heard of God stepping in to save somebody that coercively? I mean, people are killed all the time. And I'd like to believe they're just as important as Ammon. So there are a lot of issues that I would raise with a, a scripture like that. But if we take it at face value, God is acting coercively to bring about his plan. But just remember, it was probably written after the fact and saying, oh, well, this guy died. And it's probably God that did it. But you don't get to God saying, I slew him. But, you know, that's possible. Sure. Right, right, right. And I guess so. Can we make the assertion then that if there's something that is going to happen because of a free choice by a human that could in some way hinder or frustrate God's plan, he would then step in and take action. Well, that's exactly what those scriptures that I just cited, you know, those instances were about. But uh, it must be pointed out that by its very nature, our own salvation and exaltation have to be up to us. God could genuinely lose with respect to his goals for our salvation and exaltation because that's up to us. And God can't change the fact that it's up to us. If God simply killed me because I wasn't doing what he wanted to, I certainly wouldn't be saved or exalted. I would just be taken out of the picture. So if God has purposes for a nation, I suppose he can act coercively given these kinds of scriptures. One wonders about the divine justice and love in such instances. But that's something I deal with in the fourth volume in terms of the problem of evil, and that's way down the road. So we're okay. getting way ahead of ourselves. <laughs> All right. There's just, just since we were on the subject, that I would bring it up. But because of these new limitations, you do come up with the definition of omnipotence number three, which is an agent A is omnipotent if A is able unilaterally to bring about any logically possible state of affairs, which does not entail that A did not bring about the state of affairs. Okay, a free action is one that logically entails that God can't bring it about. My free actions are by their very nature something God can't do. So my doing a free act logically entails that God didn't bring about my free act. I did. 
it's what God can unilaterally do. It doesn't depend on somebody else freely choosing to bring it about. So God has to be able to act on his own to bring it about. And so the limitation here is simply those acts which by their very nature God can't bring about. So, for instance, if God is essentially good, then an evil act is one that's by its very nature and tells that it's not brought about by God. So this is a very broad definition. And so if we go through all of the kinds of things that we've already talked about, they're acts that entail that God can't bring them about. And so this definition captures that intuition. Okay. And uh, just another quick quote that you have about this subject is, Free acts of persons are a subspecies of events which cannot be brought about by God because they are not caused to occur as they do by anything except the self-determining agent who brings them about. Yeah, just stay, stating again what essentially what I just explained. By their nature, they're actions that entail that God doesn't bring them about. So God doesn't have to have power to bring them about. Because he doesn't. <laughs> All right. But, um, but logically, he can't. Uh, that brings us to the next section, which is past necessity and divine power, where you go into God not being able to change the past. If you could go in a little bit as to why that is a big deal. Sure. In a sense, maybe this is also another way of talking about logical necessity, but I don't think so, and I'm going to explain this very complicated assertion very simply. If I could change the past, presumably I could change the fact that Lincoln was killed by John Wilkes Booth. But if I were able to change the past, there is a true statement which asserts that in 1864, John Wilkes Booth murdered Lincoln. That's a true statement, and anybody who doesn't believe it's truth does, simply doesn't know history. But if I could change it to be instead that John Wilkes Booth did not kill Lincoln in 1864 so that they're both true, then I would have a direct contradiction. I would have two propositions both asserted to be true, which are logically incompatible with each other and can't both be true in the same world. And so they're not compossible statements logically. That means they can't both be true in the same possible world. So the world where Lincoln is not killed in 1864 is one possible world, and the world where he is killed in 1864 is another possible world, which just happens to be the actual world. I assert that the actual world is the only possible world once it's occurred because it's logically inconsistent to assert that a different set of propositions is true. It's logically possible that they be true or could have been true, but once they've occurred, only propositions, only assertions that are consistent with what's occurred are logically possible. Otherwise, we have to do away with the law of the excluded middle and a whole bunch of very basic logical laws, and there would be no way to make sense of our world in any way. All truths. Now, there is a view that's called universal possibilism in the sense that all possible worlds are deemed to be actual. This is a notion that people come up with in science fiction based upon the quantum physics theories, saying that not only is this world, all possible worlds are actual, which is just, in my view, it's nonsense. There's no way that we can maintain any sense of logic, any sense of time, any sense of moral significance to our lives if everything is true all at once. And so bedrock notions to not only human rationality, but to what it means to be a human at all, the very core of all of these notions would have to be given up in order to believe that God could change the past. Now, it's not logically impossible to change the past. Maybe what I've said indicates that it is logically impossible because logically contradictory propositions would both be true, if that were the case. But I want to say that time travel doesn't seem to me to be logically impossible. 
But there are certain kinds of actions that can't be done if time travel is possible. So the question becomes, is time travel possible? And I want to assert that time travel is logically impossible because then we have logically possible inconsistent statements all being true. So my view is that this notion of all possible worlds being all actual worlds is simple logical nonsense. You can't change the past. Certainly, human beings don't have any power to change the past. We wouldn't even know what it would be, what action we could take to change the past. We can't even come up with a notion of what it would be like to exercise a power that we have to change the past. We, of course, can spin fairy tales about how we could go back in time and change the past. And then, of course, as you see in science fiction, if you do that, everything starts to unravel and you get all these different timelines and nobody knows where they are in what timeline. <laughs> so. How, how could one have any moral responsibility if that's the case? But it seems to me the moral responsibility is essential to Christianity. And so to believe that the past could be changed, we'd have to give up that notion. So I want to simply say the past is fixed over and done with and necessary in a sense that the future and the present are not, whether that's because of logical necessity, whether it's because of what we would call accidental or, or past temporal necessity. You simply can't change the past. And so God doesn't have to have power to be able to change the past. So I give an example in the book. There's a girl named Robin who has lost her virginity. And I know this is somewhat unsavory, but it's an example that was used by several medieval theologians, so I, I run with it. She prays to God so that he makes it so that she never lost her virginity after she's done it. I assert that God doesn't have power to answer the prayer <laughs> because he can't change the past. What she's asking for is impossible. She might like it to be the case that God could just undo the entire past world and, and make up a new one, but I think that's getting into notions of simple nonsense and logical impossibility. With this notion that uh, changing the past being impossible, we now come up with the definition of omnipotence number four, which is A is omnipotent at T if A is able unilaterally to bring any logically possible state of affairs after T, which, number one, does not entail that A does not bring about the state of affairs at T, and two, is compossible with all events which preceded T in time in the actual world. So I use this as an adequate notion of omnipotence. We finally come up with a definition that seems to work. In the next section, I'm going to raise a problem for this definition, and I want to point out something. I modified the definition in a footnote to accommodate this concern. And so my actual final definition of Omnipotence is not there. It's found in footnote 17 on pages 184 and 185, and that adds an additional condition. So, for instance, this is the problem of Makir. I think it was George Mavrodis who taught at Michigan who came up with the problem of Makir. Makir is a guy who has only one capacity, and that is to scratch his left ear. And Makir is essentially such that he can only do one thing, and that scratch his left ear. The problem is, is that given the fact that these are essential properties of Makir, it turns out that he's omnipotent under this definition, even though he can only do one thing, and that scratches left ear, <laughs> okay? And so we have to add a proviso, if you will, that uh, says that, and I add this to accommodate that concern, A is maximally powerful at a time T, if A is able unilaterally to bring about any state of affairs, SA, which does not entail that it's not brought about by A, that is compossible with everything that's occurred in the world up until that time, and this is the proviso that I add, A's essential properties 
are consistent with a actualizing the maximum range of states of affairs possible for any being. So the maximal range of states of affairs that can be brought about must be able to be brought about by an omnipotent being. It can't be the case that there is a being that can only scratch his left ear who's omnipotent because the maximal range of states of affairs has to be open to the power of an omnipotent being. Do you understand what I'm asserting there? Yeah. I want to emphasize that an adequate notion of omnipotence is something that I left to a footnote and probably should have put it in the text. And, you know, this has important implications for God. Now, I'm not sure that Makir is even a coherent notion. The notion of a being that is essentially such that he can only scratch his left ear seems to itself be incoherent, because it seems like in order to be able to do that, he'd have to be able to do other things like carry on basic life activities, move his arms, move his fingers have feeling in his ear. So there are a number of other things that are entailed in doing that. So that describing this one basic action seems to be inadequate. So I raise whether McCure is a real problem is something that would have to be discussed. But it seems to me that it at least intuitively makes some sense that an omnipotent being should be able to bring about the maximal range of states of affairs open to any being to bring about. That doesn't mean God can bring about free acts, because no being can bring about the free acts of others. But any act that is open to being to bring about that doesn't until it's not brought about by that being is something that God can do. And so what I assert is that we've gone through a number of definitions of omnipotence that have been proposed in the history of theology, rejecting them all as inadequate for different reasons. And now I assert that finally and at last, we have an adequate notion of maximal power, that is divine power, with which we can work because it's coherent and explanatory. It's not being able to do simply anything that's logically possible. But with these conditions, we can now responsibly discuss divine power. All right. And that segues, you mentioned one of them, but the next section here is the problems for omnipotence. And Corey's going to go into some of the other problems that you brought up in addition to Mickey here. Yeah, that was the main one. The only other one you mentioned, you don't have to go too much into this just to keep this more brief because we got a lot to cover still, but. There's an age-old question saying, well, if God's all-powerful, could God create a stone that even he couldn't lift? And if he couldn't do that, then he's not all-powerful. And if he could make the stone that he couldn't lift, then he's not all-powerful anymore. Which is it? Can't have both. That's my summary. Yeah, and so I I go through a a number of responses to this problem by really top-notch philosophers. You might think it's it's just a a throwaway problem, just, you know, something that, that you use to bother your, the- your theology teachers if you go to a Catholic school. But that's not the case. George Mavrodis, who is just a top drawer philosopher, Richard Swinburne, who may be the most significant English philosopher in, in our time, deal with this paradox and this problem. I suggest a different solution than either of them, given my definition. If God creates a stone that's too large for him to lift, He doesn't have to have power to lift it in order to count as maximally powerful, because if he has created a stone that's too large for him to lift, he would now have to change the past in order to make it so that there's a stone that there's nothing he can't lift. But he doesn't have to be able to change the past in order to be perfectly powerful or maximally powerful. And so it doesn't count against the divinity of his power simply because he can't lift the stone that he's created. In the same way, and I make this analogy, in the same way he can't control human beings once he's chosen to leave them free. It doesn't count against God's omnipotence that he can't bring about our acts once he's chosen to honor our freedom. 
And so it's the same with the stone. Once he's chosen to create a stone he can't lift, it doesn't count against his power that he can't lift it. All right, interesting solution. All right, yeah, and that brings us to the next two. The the first one here, they kind of segue into one another, and so let's spend less time on the first and more on the second, but uh, the first is persuasive and coercive power. And so at the beginning here, you have to say, well, we have to kind of find out if we accept this definition of omnipotence that you put forth, then is it compatible with coercive power, which could potentially prevent free actions from individuals. And in order to understand that, we have to understand two things. One's the nature of the free individuals in question, and two, whether the exercise of coercive power is ever morally permissible. And so in the first section, you mostly go into the two notions of classical theism in the understanding of creation ex nihilo and what that implies. So you say there's two understandings. One is that God created at a certain time, and then after that, it, you know, create it to be going, and then it's been going since that time. Or the second notion of creation ex nihilo is that God is, in every single instance, recreating the whole universe again, and thus, I would say, exerting coercive power in that you'd have to pretty much be controlling every little thing that happens. Right. The first position is called perdurance. That is, God is like a guy who, who winds up the watch, gets it going, and then lets it unwind on its own, doesn't have to do anything further. And so God just creates a world that endures on its own. I argue in the second volume that that really isn't a possible view, because God cannot give the property of self-existence or continuing existence to something, because if it is contingently existent by its very nature, then without God sustaining it in existence, it would pass out of existence. So I reject the notion of perdurance as something that is available to a classical theologian, which brings us to the second notion, which is called occasionalism, that God creates everything new in every moment. So this is a view that was held by Mel Bronch, among others. Mel Bronch, I, say, I should say Mel Bronch because he was French, but his view was that God recreated the universe in perfect harmony with what had gone before, so that when he recreates you in the next moment, he recreates you with all the memories you had in the prior moment, together with new memories that arise from the fact that you did something in the new moment in which he created you. There's an interesting paradox that arises. God could create us at, say, 54 years of age with all of the memories we have of a prior life up to 54 years of age, and we wouldn't be able to tell the difference, <laughs> Okay, saying we'd never existed before that. The other problem with that view, of course, is fairly obvious, and that is if God is creating us in each moment doing what we're doing, then God is directly bringing about everything that we do, and it's very difficult to have any notion of moral accountability, free will, or anything of that nature. And in fact, in volume two, I'm going to argue that the classical theist is stuck with occasionalism, and that occasionalism is inconsistent with free will, that it's inconsistent with the most basic kinds of things that Christians want to say, such as we're morally accountable, we can repent, and it's up to us in some instances what we do. All right. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you there. I actually even think that the first definition, if you take it to its logical conclusions, also leads to basically determinism. But, you know, there's arguments against that, but I just don't think they make sense. I think that's right. I would point out there were some very, very bright philosophers. The notion is one of secondary causation. Is there anything besides God that brings anything about? And this was a large ongoing discussion in medieval theology because it seems that the theological system that they had developed in classical theism didn't allow room for anything to act except for God. 
So when things act in nature, they don't act because of their natural powers or anything. They do it because God created them to be doing that in that particular moment. And yeah, that has interesting implications. <laughs> All right. So that kind of segues, like I said, this is like a subcategory of that, but it's its own in its own way. It's God's power and natural laws. And so it's kind of transitioning to this idea of the Mormon metaphysics, if you will, meaning that there are uncreated, eternal, coexisting intelligences, like we discussed last time a bit. I'll just read this paragraph here. It says, Mormonism recognizes that God's creative power is conditioned by the principles and actualities which are prior to God's creative act. These prior actualities include inherently self-directing selves known as intelligences, primordial physical objects or mass energy conserved in the universe as a whole, and the natural laws which essentially structured these material realities. That kind of brings into our definition this notion that we talked about last time, that the elements themselves are eternal. And what we mean by this, at least what we understand now, is meaning the basic constituents of physical states are uncreated and indestructible. Before we go further on that, according to your research, is that still a view compatible with the understanding of science? Because I, I know that back in Joseph Smith's day, everyone believed that the universe was eternal, and that's where they come up with this conservation of energy and matter. And does that still hold true today? It does, but this is a very long conversation. In some, the answer is yes, but you have to replace the word universe with the word multiverse, which is eternal. Gotcha. All right, well, let's move on to the next part here, then. This is another quote. The fact that material states exist without beginning in time does not mean that an ordered cosmos exists without beginning. So that's a very important point to make. We're not saying that the universe as it exists now has always existed. That's not a Mormon understanding. It says, until God organized the physical universe, the universe existed in utter chaos, or at least as far as humans would observe it, utter chaos. So you define two types of intelligences. So we're saying intelligences are eternal, but if we say I'm an intelligence, I would assume that means something different than every atom in my body, because they can't all be thinking like me. So you define two types of intelligences. The first is there are intelligences which define the essential properties of each actual individual person. So I take that to mean humans or creatures like unto them. That could be debatable, I guess. And two, not self-conscious entities, but they exhibit the property of intelligence in the sense that they exhibit regularity of law-like behavior. So those are two different ideas of intelligence that are pretty important to make distinct here. Anything you want to add to that? Well, I'm making a distinction that I'm not sure is fully explained in Scripture, but I think it's essential to make the distinction. I'm following the Pratts, Witzow, and B.H. Roberts in making this distinction, and that is we have basic intelligences, and, and the most basic intelligence is simply, and we call it a particle or a wave function or whatever you want to call it, which manifests some law-like behavior, and it's this manifestation of law-like behavior which we would call intelligence. That doesn't imply that it is self-conscious intelligence or that it manifests intelligence in the sense that uh, there's a cognitive process of thinking occurring or consciousness, okay? So we're not asserting that all intelligences are self-conscious. However, there's a gradation of intelligences from the least intelligent to the most intelligent. This is fully scriptural. It's in the book of Abraham. And the most intelligences uh, are integrated intelligences that, that um, have organized and use the organization of the more basic intelligences in things like brains, cerebellums, and central nervous systems 
in order to give rise to emergent properties of consciousness and the ability to think, cognize, and so forth. And so what I want to assert is that there's this grade of intelligences, and there's not just one kind of intelligence in the sense that there are those intelligences which are self-conscious and there are those which are not. All right. And on your view, it seems like a human is only a certain step along a long path of different levels of organization. And so are you saying that even though I'm at a certain organized state now, my intelligence, meaning I could think the same way I think now, has always existed? Or what level of that does that break down? In terms of operating within a material universe, we have to have a body that functions with the brain. The five senses give us access to be able to have some kind of interaction and gain information from the physical material world in which we live. I presume that taking on ourselves a body with further organization and integration gave us the opportunity to access an entire material dimension that would not have been available to spiritual experience. That is, the experience of spirits or intelligences was more limited. So I would assert that human intelligences before this life were self-conscious, they were free. You know, the whole list of things we can go through that were enumerated by B.H. Roberts and by the Pratts and so forth, but that it required further integration to be able to maintain consciousness and operate within the material dimension in which we now exist. So bodies are essential to be alive, for instance. Their working brains are essential to consciousness of this material universe. Without brains, we don't have any consciousness of a material universe in which we exist. So I want to say that there is a vast difference in the scope of experience open to an intelligence or spirit and the scope of experience open to a mortal body. And presumably, a resurrected body is even more refined and perfect in, in the way that it processes and gives us information so that it may yet give us access to even greater dimensions of reality. It'd be like gaining the ability to see ultraviolet and infrared and, and microwaves and x-rays that we can't possibly access right now except through instruments. All right, and then another, well, first, uh, before I ask the question, I have to define this, I guess. So you say Mormons adopt what is called essentialism, which is that the eternally existing natural intelligences have essential properties which define how they act and react. So that's the natural intelligences is talking about there. So you give an example in the book of a water molecule, meaning two hydrogens and one oxygen, whenever they form, they essentially have the requirement that they, that would become water, and that's not something that God could necessarily change. That's essential to them, and it's always been essential to them. I'm going to explain something that could be very complicated, and I'm going to do it as simply as possible, okay? The key notion here is that God can't have whatever natural laws the universe he desires. However, God could have it so that we have only chaos and not order. He brought the order out of the chaos. So here's the key. The powers that lead to the organization and manifestation of natural laws are found in the natural realities, in the material realities, like hydrogen and oxygen. And so whenever they're in a molecular unity, they necessarily exhibit the properties of water in H2O. And so God couldn't have a molecule of two hydrogens and one oxygen in molecular unity and not have water. However, the ability to organize it all, the ability to manifest these powers, is up to God. He must concur with the basic powers of these realities in order for them to manifest their powers. 
So whether there is order in the universe is up to God. What the natural laws are that fall out once order is brought about are not up to God. So God can't have different natural laws than he has. And his choice is one between chaos or order. It's not between this universe having these laws and another universe having different natural laws. And that's simplifying the discussion in the book. And I adopt what would otherwise be known as as an Aristotelian view of natural law, where we explain natural law by the basic natural tendencies and powers of natural realities. Basic things like atoms and molecules and quarks, which just exhibit, they just happen to have these powers. It's just the way that it is. And the fact that they have these powers, we can't get behind the fact to explain why hydrogen has the power of bonding in a molecular unity with oxygen, except for the fact that they have certain electron valences, and that's just the kind of thing that they are. The electron valences just happen to have this inherent power of forming these molecules, and that's just the way that it is. And these are basic powers of these natural realities. So, as I said, this is a view that's inspired by Aristotle's view of natural law. It was a view that was more fully explained by Luis de Molina and his student Suarez in the 16th century. It's a view that usually physicists don't speak in these terms anymore, but physicists are not very careful about the underlying philosophical notion of natural law with which they're working, and they simply adopt operative definitions. That is, they have mathematic functions, and they simply adopt the operative notions that fall out of their mathematic functions. But in doing the functions in the way they're doing them, they assume a lot. And so the answers are contained in the assumptions of their equations. And I want to be more conscious about the notion of what a natural law is. So that's my theory of natural law consistent with the Mormon commitment to an uncreated realities in the universe, which can be organized by divine power, I would add. Okay, so my question here, I guess, is if I I just say there, I don't know if I'd say unorganized molecules or atoms would constitute my idea of chaos, because we can break it down even further, like you say. I would picture with modern physics, we would say chaos is that parts that make those up, the things that are popping in and out of, not popping, but just kind of seemingly going in and out of You're talking reality. about virtual virtual particles in the vacuum. Well, not even there. Let's just say something that we, you know, we talked about process thought before, and that's basically everything is waves of energy rather than actual atoms and material itself. Well, but they're both in quantum physics. They have properties of both being a particle and also being a wave function. Okay. And so there's this duality to reality that's difficult for us to conceptualize And the more we try to conceptualize it, the further we get away from what actually is. But here's what I want to say. Modern cosmology begins with what physics calls the vacuum. The vacuum has a negative energy. And there are what are known as virtual particles that kind of pop in and out of existence by using the energy of the vacuum. It's a negative energy, but it's an energy. And so the ultimate chaos is this vacuum with virtual particles that have no order whatsoever. And yet, all our multiverse theories arise from the fact that perhaps at a particular region of space, these particles have enough energy to then create a Big Bang event and create a pocket universe. And this happens all the time. It's like evolution. You you have one universe which comes into existence that has properties that allow it only to exist for a fraction of a second. 
Another that comes into existence may last for an hour because that's what its natural laws that form at the beginning of the creation of that particular pocket universe dictate. Ours happened to have a very narrow range of values that allowed it to remain in existence and endure. And those values seem to be as if, though, on a tipping point, very finely tuned. And so fine-tuned arguments for the existence of God arise and so forth. I'm not going to get into that in great detail, but that's where arguments for intelligent design initially start to then get into biological functions. But these finely tuned conditions that have to exist for a pocket universe to continue to exist at all are pretty remarkable. I, for one, have never been able to bring myself to believe that it just happens by chance, but there are a lot of people who do. All right. Well, I'll just sum up the rest of this section then if we can say whatever you want. So you've pretty much talked about this, but I'll just give quotes from the book. So we give two ideas that are opposing, I'd say one is more the classical view versus the Mormon view. It says, according to conventional thought, it is conceivable that God could have created different types of realities that have different properties than those which we know in the actual world. And if you assume creation ex nihilo, you could definitely say that. You could have had any properties you wanted. Versus what we believe in Mormon thought, according to Mormon thought, the natural intelligences that have the essential natural properties, such as organizing into atoms of hydrogen and oxygen, and forming molecules of water, when in a molecular unity, also exist of ontological necessity. You already went over kind of God's general concurrence. You bring that up in the book to explain some ideas put forth in Doctrine and Covenants section 88 about law, like God's light being the law, and so you make sense of it that way, meaning, you know, he holds it together with his concurring power. So he doesn't necessarily control the way it exists, but he can control whether it exists or not, I guess, is what that means to me. And then I just wanted to have you explain this particular quote, if you could. It says, Thus, God is not responsible for natural evils in Mormon thought, events which arise from natural order such as earthquakes, cancer, diseases, etc., are features of any natural order that can exist. My question there is, though, you mentioned before, and I guess you talk about a miracle. You said it also explains miracles because you take the example of Daniel in the Bible, and it's the story about when the, the people get tossed into the fiery furnace, but they're not burned. And you're saying, well, God could withdraw his concurrence from fire, and it wouldn't burn your skin. But if God can do that, then how is God not necessarily... I mean, I can see how he's not responsible for natural evils that occur, but is he... And I know we don't want to get into the problem of you, but how is he not responsible for natural evils if all he has to do is not let them occur, or not allow them to occur? Well, the key here is that he can't be responsible for moral evils because he doesn't bring them about. They're brought about by the free people who do them, and he can't be accountable for them, and... and He's committed to freedom for a number of reasons. Natural laws are features of any universe that could exist as an organized universe. And God's choice is between having an organized universe and a totally chaotic universe. And it so happens that a fully organized universe is far more valuable than sheer chaos. And so he's justified in bringing order out of chaos. And he can't really have different natural laws, and the natural laws dictate what natural evils occur. Now, this is a very fast and short way of giving a very, very brief statement of the metaphysics of a, of a theodicy, which I get to in volume four. So we're miles away from where we need to be. <laughs> and I've read some of that, so yeah, I, I know. okay. So basic statements, God's not necessarily directly responsible for natural evils or moral evils, obviously, because those are free acts of humans. And then next, we will move on to God's power in creation, and Jacob's going to take that one. 
Yeah, I mean, we won't go too in-depth on some of these because you've gone over it a, a number of times. First off, you know, the assertion, how can God be omnipotent without being able to create ex nihilo? And we as Mormons say that it follows that God is the omnipotent source of natural law, even though God cannot bring it about, that natural substances have different natural tendencies or that they do not act of nomological necessity whenever they act. What is nomological necessity, by the way, Dad? Nomos is Greek for law, and so nomological has to do with natural law. So if I say that something happens of nomological necessity, it means it happens with the kind of necessity that things occur when they occur pursuant to a natural law occurring. Now, I'm a conceptualist, so I believe the laws are just basically our general conceptual descriptions of the way things actually occur. But there is actually something underlying why the regularities exist. <laughs> it's not just conceptual. In other words, it's not dependent on us. It's not like laws wouldn't exist if we didn't have human consciousness. There would still be natural laws. And so when th something happens of nomological necessity, it happens with the necessity of a law of nature. You then get into how God's able to withdraw his general concurrence, which you mentioned a little bit in the last section. But then you, we move on to asking whether coercive power is consistent with the divine nature in Mormon thought. Let me explain a little bit about concurrence, and that is that God has to lend his organizing power to the natural reality so that they can express their natural tendencies. So water would not organize from hydrogen and oxygen unless God acted upon the natural realities to express their eternal properties, okay? So say, allowed them, maybe. Well, no, we... He doesn't allow them. He, his power is a, is a necessary condition to the expression of natural law behavior. It's what brings about the order and everything, right? Because before God ordered everything, there was chaos. And that, right. That's the result of God not having his concurrence. Exactly. So what we're looking at here is that the natural order has an order only because God gives his power to natural realities to express their natural tendencies. And that's all I'm saying about that. Okay. And then it also provides a profound view on the, the scripture in DNC 121, where it says, No power can or ought to be maintained only by persuasion, by long suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned. Yeah, I mean, it seems that this imposes a moral condition on the use of God's power, which is essential. What it's saying, as I read it, is that in order for divine power to be exercised at all, it must be exercised in a way that is consistent with divine love. Mm -hmm. And when we get into the notion of the Godhead as three persons united in love, and that gives rise to their divinity and to the divine power, we then see that this love is a necessary condition to the existence of divine beings at all. And so God couldn't act, metaphysically couldn't act, in a way that is inconsistent with being loving. And he couldn't act coercively because that's inconsistent with the divine love. And then you get into uh, how God does, in fact, have the power to coerce the exercise of the power of intelligences. However, God will generally refrain from such coercive power because it is not consistent with his loving nature. You saying there generally, uh, is that leaving room open for those times where he would need to step in to fulfill his purposes and his plan? Well, no, it's just the nature of coercive power that God has because he can bring about the maximal range of states of affairs. God can't, as I said, have different natural laws, but certainly God can bring about anything consistent with the natural laws that exist, and that allows him to exercise coercive power. 
I mean, you can pick up your kids and carry them to bed consistent with natural laws. And if the maximal range of power is open to God that you have, then God can act coercively in that sense. Now, would it be consistent with the divine power to be also expressive of love? Because as I I explained, to be in this loving relationship is a necessary condition to the existence of divine power. That seems to entail that if coercion in a certain circumstance is inconsistent with loving action, then God can't act coercively because the power of the priesthood, divine power, would cease to exist if he acted in a coercive way. He can't act in that way. So there's a moral constraint on the use of divine power, and there's a metaphysical or nomological constraint on the use of divine power as well. Is there a situation where exercising coercive power would be consistent with a loving nature? Well, of course, you do it all the time when your kids get tired and you carry them to bed or your kids try to run out into the street and you grab them and you stop them coercively from running into the path of an oncoming car. You're acting coercively, but that's certainly not inconsistent with acting in a loving manner. And so, yes, you can act coercively consistent with love and divine power. Well, that depends on your definition of coercive, I would imagine. How would you define coercive? Like actual metaphysically coercive or just physically coercive? Uh, It would be overpower, something that naturally would occur, but when God acts, he acts in a way that overpowers it so that it doesn't express what it naturally would do or would do if it chose to do. And I imagine being your fourth book is on the, the problem of evil, it's premature to talk about why God would not exercise this coercive power in a, a loving manner. A whole lot more. <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh, it's too early to get into that discussion. Okay, so we'll say save that one for later. All right, so uh, we, we've talked about the exceptions there. That moves us on to your conclusion which, uh, Corey, did you want to read that one? Or yeah, I just want wanted to, to read this real quick. This is just about the moral part of it, and then I want to talk about the other part as well. So it says, God can coerce personal intelligences only while obliterating their power of self-determinism. God, in fact, would never engage in exercising such coercive power with respect to personal intelligences, even if he could. Which I'm confused because it says he could, but then you're saying that he can't. Anyway, we'll talk about it in a second. To obliterate the power of self-determinism at the level of the free will is to bring about that the intelligences cease to exist as a personal agency. Yet, since an intelligence is essentially and eternally self-determining, a, a self-determining personal agency, God can take away free agency only by causing the intelligence to cease to exist. However, because intelligences exist of ontological necessity, meaning they cannot cease to exist, cannot be created or destroyed, it is metaphysically impossible for God to coerce an intelligence in any way. Is that a correct idea of that? Right. God can't, at the metaphysical level, make it so that an intelligence isn't acting freely when it acts. God could, however, exercise overpower so that when the intelligence acts at a physical level, so there are two different levels, acting as an intelligence essentially and acting as a material being. A material being can be coerced because physical matter can act on things to make it act with the notion of overpower. Metaphysically, an intelligence can't have its free will obliterated in the sense, and here's the distinction. Let's say that I want to move my left arm. Now, I can move my left arm when I want to, but if I were paralyzed, I could want to move my left arm but not be able to. So, at the level of desire, want, basic action of action of will, God cannot 
overpower or do away with the ability of intelligence to form that kind of a, de- of a desire or will. However, he could act on a physical level to make it so that the arm isn't raised by simply making it too hard to lift the arm, <laughs> okay? Well, that brings up a question for me, or just a problem I, I see in that, well, a question first, I guess. So as far as the natural intelligences go, since they are going to exhibit whatever power it is, and the only way God could unilaterally do anything with them would be to not allow them to be organized or exist, can God coerce anything in this way? Because it seems if we say God can only use persuasion, does that only refer to the personal intelligences or that go with natural intelligence as well, which would make up our entire bodies? And so he could persuade our arm not to move to not get burned by the oven, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he can coercively act to make that not happen, or, or am I misunderstanding? Okay, so here, here's the misunderstanding. Again, we're dealing with the notion of the power of the will. The will is perfectly active. It doesn't even exist unless there's a power to exercise, a power to will one thing rather than another. The will must be free in this sense in order for there to be the existence of a will at all, okay? So the will is perfectly active. Bodies, on the other hand, are passive. They're acted upon. So wills act, and their nature is to act, and if they can't act, they don't exist at all. The nature of bodies is to be acted upon and to be moved by the things that act upon it. So God can move our bodies in the sense that he can act upon the matter of our bodies. Now, this is going to require cooperation of the intelligences in the body, okay? So he can't do away with the basic will at our level of organization or at the level of a self-conscious being that has this will to will one thing rather than another. It's questionable whether a rock has the ability to will in this matter. In fact, I'll assert it's not questionable. I'll assert rocks don't will in this sense. And so there are physical realities that don't have these properties. We do. I don't know. I guess you'd go over that more and forth. I just have a slight disconnect of like, where does that break down as far as intelligences go in general? Just because so if I understand that the power of God was just the priesthood, which is where that scripture comes from, where it says persuasion alone will be used. If I understand you correctly, I guess you're saying that's only in relation to, well, it's in relation in general. So relation to other thinking, higher organized intelligent beings on a certain level, but you're saying that the basic constituents of reality can be manipulated by God in any possible way that they can be at any moment, no matter what. What I'm saying is that matter can be manipulated, moved, and overpowered. The will cannot. Okay, but does that's where I'm at. It's like, so where does the will of me wanting to move my arm break down into my arm being moved by God before it's no longer persuasion. And now I'm being overpowered. My will to move my arm is no longer possible because it's being coerced not to move. Obviously, that could happen without God if, like, I had a brain injury or something. But if God is the one causing that, is that not overpowering my will? Well, it doesn't overpower your will. It overpowers the ability to carry out your will, which is the distinction I made. I just don't see the difference, I guess. So you're saying he's, well, he's not overpowering my, my desire to move my arm, he's just making it so that the desire or the outcome is not happening. Clearly there's a distinction between having the will to move your body and being able to move your body. Good point. Right? Yes. Okay, that's the distinction. It's a very simple one. It's not God coercing your body not to move. Your body's just not able to. You have the will to do it, but your body isn't physically able to. 
that's where I get confused by your statement earlier just about the natural evils when it says events that arise such as natural orders like earthquakes, cancer, diseases are features of a natural order and God can't control those necessarily or is not responsible for them per se. Maybe not responsible for them coming about naturally, but I don't know. It just seems if it can be manipulated at that level, then he would have to be responsible for them basically. You need to put this in the full context of my theory of natural law and how things act given that natural law. And so physical realities can be moved, acted upon. The intelligences that have free will, that can will one thing rather than another, cannot be obliterated out of existence. And their basic inherent essential property is the ability to will and choose to will this rather than that. That doesn't require the ability to move a body. All right, so Jacob, did you have any questions on that? No, I think we went over the conclusion pretty well. Okay, is there anything else you want to add at the end here, Dad, or that take care of it? You know, if you read the summary of the chapter, it pretty well summarizes everything. Well, then next time we will continue, and this is where we start getting into God's foreknowledge, and there's several chapters dealing with that, and so for the next little while we're going to be dealing with foreknowledge and the implications and problems with that in general and other models that are possible for God. All right, so until then. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.